Come on, church. <laughs> I waited until you were drinking something before I said it. <laughs> Got him. Yeah. Good morning. I'm glad to be with you today. And um, I wonder if um, I'm kind of, I don't know about you guys, I'm kind of at the place where I'm over talking about 2020. Like this, uh, maybe this. Uh, so this is like, this will be my public declaration. Y'all are going to have to keep me accountable. Like, this is the last time I'm going to bring it up. Like, we're, <laughs> we're, we're kind of over talking about um, the anxiety and the weird thing that we've just kind of all been through. Um, but I, I feel like, and this is subjective, I know, but it seems like every time I turn around, there's something else to be angry about or something else to be frustrated about. It seems like... Uh, we as Christians are under attack. Like it seems like whatever whatever I see that's being popular right now is actually opposite of the gospel, um, or opposite of a Christian faith. Like it's it's like every time I turn around, it's like what is going on here? Is the water that I'm swimming in is something that I can't breathe anymore? It feels like that. And so what is like? What is going on in the world? Uh, is this normal? Should we expect this? Uh, and really, how do we interact with a world that's hostile towards us? Um, the reason uh, I, I'm going to stop connecting it to 2020 so much is because this is not a surprise to God. Um, Jesus even, as he was speaking with his closest disciples the night before he was, was arrested, he says, look, guys, this is how it's going to go. The world hates me, and you follow me, and so the world's going to hate you too. And they're going to be hostile towards you and they're going to attack you because if you're the messenger of the person they don't like, then they're not going to like you either. And sometimes they'll just kill the messenger. And you should just be ready for that. And so it's not necessarily a 2020 issue. It's something that I think is pervasive and that I think believers, followers of Jesus, have had to face over the centuries that we've been on the earth uh, since Jesus left us and entrusted us with his mission. And so are, like, are we under attack? And then what do we do if we are? And I'm thankful that God in his providence has written and left his word for us that uh, addresses uh, very specific situations where um, it's very clear that the culture is attacking people of faith and things like that. And he left us some models, some dudes that navigated things in a really incredible way. And I do think that we have things to learn from them. But here's my warning. I'm going to give you a warning at the, at the beginning. Because when I read the Bible, um, when I first started reading the Bible, I would read the Bible and I would read stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I'd be like, all right, so those guys are the heroes and I just got to do what they do until I realized like Abraham was sleeping with four different women and that caused a lot of problems for his family dynamic. Like, okay, maybe I don't need to do everything that Abe was doing. How do I deal with this? And so... There are um, people that God tells his story through, that he, he says, look, this is how I interact with people. And um, it's not oftentimes that we look at the people, it's oftentimes that we see God through what he's doing with the people. And so the hero of any story in scripture, here's a spoiler alert, the hero of any story in scripture is God. And he is the one that we should be looking to. Now, I say that, but I also say, 
the book that we're going to turn to is the book of Daniel. And Daniel is a guy that scripture actually doesn't record really any kind of criticism of. There, most people, most dudes, ladies included, like if, if God's going to tell a story through them, he will, not, he will not pull punches and say like, yeah, but this was a real person and this is kind of how they screwed up. There's a criticism. Daniel's one of those guys that God's kind of like, yeah, Daniel was cool. This, it was legit. What he did, that was, that was cool. So um, it makes me uncomfortable. I want, I want my heroes to have some dirt under their fingernails and Daniel's just not that dude. But we're going we're gonna to talk about how do we interact with that. Like, are we supposed to be a Daniel? I, like, we'll, we'll talk about that. So I encourage you to, incur, uh, to turn with me to the book of Daniel. Um, and I did not write down what page number we're going to be in in these blue Bibles. So I'm going to actually find it. I don't know if you guys have the experience of the Bible that you use all the time. Um, when you try to look up the same thing in a different Bible, it's just bound to different. Like, you just can't. Get your fingers on it. And that's what I'm doing right now. So if you're using these blue Bibles, we're going to be on page 925. 925 in these blue Bibles. Daniel chapter 1. You're laughing at me. Has she? Speak up. Holler back. Come on. Okay, well, I'd stop talking if you'd talk to me. Here, here we go. Um, so we're going to be in Daniel. You guys are navigating there. Some of you are there faster than I am, so uh, God's grace be upon you. And I just ask for you to pause with me as we begin um, looking at this text. Would you pray with me the disciples' prayer? Um, not, a, not a magic prayer, not a magic spell, but the model of prayer that Jesus left for us as people who want to honor him with our lives. So uh, would you pray together with me as we begin? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Here's the story. There's a free country. There was a really crazy, like, independent story about how this country became even a country. But it was a free country, and they'd, they had a couple of hundred years of history under their belt, and they had had some, like, really great leaders, some, some men who uh, honored God with their lives, and they, and they led the country well. And there have been some other leaders that, like, really, like, not so much. They hadn't been super great, but, like, this is, this is a good country, and it was a free country. Like, they were independent, and they were, um, you know, doing their thing. And then there were some foreigners who saw what was going on over there and said, you know what, like, we're going we're gonna to do that differently. These foreigners, like, they thought backwards from the people of this, of this free nation, and they, and they thought, like, you know, the way that we think is actually superior to the way that they think, and so we're going to come and we're going to, like, invade. And we're going to invade that country and we're going to take over the government. And, 
It's not enough to just like have political control and political power. Like we need to, we need to take over the heart of the nation. And so how are we going to take over the heart of the nation? We will divide families from one another. Um, we will uh, make, make it so that children and their parents like don't have a good connection. And we will take the children and we will re-educate them so that they think backwards to how their parents think. And that's going to introduce all this hostility. And so this nation, even if it survives, like, the cultural dynamics of parents and, and, and children are going to be at odds with one another. And so that no matter what, these foreigners have invaded and they've won. They've gotten their roots into the hearts of the country. Is that a, is that a compelling narrative? Are there some of us that identify with those vague details? Let's read in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. I'll pause there. So, the scene opens at the end of this independent nation. <laughs> uh, we're not talking about America. We're talking about the nation of Israel. And Israel is a, is a different kind of country, one unique among all the nations of the world, one founded and established by God himself. And he says, look, guys, he takes this, this, this small group of slave people and says, I will set you free and I will make you a nation. I'll give you a land. I'll give you an inheritance. And you will have a special relationship with me. I will put my presence among you. I will dwell with you and you will be my people. Just follow me. Like forget every other false thing that you could possibly worship and just, just follow me. I will reveal myself to you. I will speak to you. I will even be involved in your daily lives and settle disputes between you. My presence will be there to be a judge and I will be your king and your God present among you. You will be special. And they signed off on that idea but they never followed through. They, they sometimes were faithful, but oftentimes it was more compelling to be conformed by the other 
thought that was in the world, the, the pagan thought which said like, well, if you, if you offer this sacrifice at this time to that God, then you'll have the right harvest. Or if you go and sleep with this prostitute, that'll make your fields more fertile. And so those things seemed a lot more enjoyable than like going to the temple and killing an animal. So they were like, yeah, let's do this instead. And so their faithfulness to God um, was not. <laughs> Over and over it was not. And God, God, his heart broke for the things that they were doing, and so he pursued them. He would send prophets to them to declare his word and say, look, like, I want to show my grace to you. Like, will you please turn and stop and leave these broken ways of living and turn to me? And they constantly rejected and killed the prophets that God sent hundreds of years, cycle after cycle of sin. And finally, God says, I have told you that if you do not turn to me, I'll take you away. And the day comes in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. On the political landscape, this is what it looked like. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The, the, The biggest army in the world at the time came and besieged Jerusalem. So you think, oh, well, the military came and they won a victory. But what does verse 2 say? And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. God's people did not fall to a foreign invader unless God allowed it to happen. Not only did they take the government, they took also the golden vessels from the temple, the, the, the vessels that were sanctified, set apart, holy in their use just for God and worship of God. Those things go to a foreign land. They were made specifically to be in this place, and now they're taken somewhere else, carried off by unclean hands. There's this this army that literally moves in and takes over, and then they they begin what I described. They start splitting up families. We want the the cream of the crop of Jerusalem, the the richest kids, the smartest kids. We want all of them, and we're going to take them, and we're going to re-educate them. We're going to bring them into captivity, and we're going to teach them how to be Babylonians. Do you see how deep their re-education process was? They changed their name. I, I'm not going to get into the, 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 the shift as specifically as I could, but if you look um, at the names in verse 6, um, and if you know that in Hebrew, Yah um, or El, Yah or El are names that are, that are used to um, give honor to Yahweh, God. So all of these young men's names are related to the God of Israel, and when they change their names, they take the ah and the L out of them. They, ta- they say, yeah, you, your name and your family named you to honor Yahweh, but now we're going to name you after our own gods. And now every time someone speaks to you, you're going to be reminded that your God was not strong enough to deliver your city, to deliver your family, and our gods reign supreme. Every time somebody calls you to dinner, or every time somebody calls your name across the classroom, you're going to be reminded of how weak and frail your God was, that he was allowed you to be taken prisoner. The way that you grew up is no more... The, the, the systems of sacrifices, the, the true worship of the true God, like we're going to obliterate that all the way down to its roots. We're going to take you away and re-educate you. And then maybe 
you can have a job. Sounds like a, uh, like a really encouraging book, doesn't it? Everything that could go bad does, right? So before uh, we're too discouraged, <laughs> let me give you our big idea this morning. God is not held captive even when his people fail. We see here a picture of God's judgment, a picture of, of perfect failure by God's people. That They had this special and unique opportunity to walk with God in a special way, and they just didn't. They just got busy doing their own thing and, and taking care of their own crops and not going and worshiping God the way they ought to. Like They just didn't. But God is not held captive even when his people fail. That's encouraging. Particularly with the proliferation of how quickly news travels in our day and how regularly we can hear about the failures of people that claim the name of Christ. <laughs> I can remember um, the night that the, the Capitol was assaulted. And I can remember seeing men with weapons in one hand and banners with the name of my Lord Jesus in the other. I said, God, this is backwards. You, you gave of yourself. You were the suffering servant. You went to the cross in order to forgive, and yet these men would wage war with your name across these banners. And I remember trying to explain to my children why I was so upset, and I didn't know how to say it. And all I could pray while tucking them in that night was, Lord, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. And these men would use your name for, for this destructive purpose. God is not held captive even when his people fail. Let's read in verse 8. But Daniel, notice he doesn't call himself Belshazzar, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward of whom the chiefs of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Ananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants. For ten days, let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So, there's a, a, a test here. And I think what's key in the narrative, what's key in Daniel's life is right there in the first bit of verse 8. But Daniel resolved. Daniel made a decision 
that he was not going to allow himself to be re-educated. He was not going to allow himself to forget the God who had, um, the God who had called his father Abraham. He was not going to leave his faith behind. Though they would rip it out of his soul if they had the opportunity, he resolved that he would hold on to it. He would not defile himself with the king's food nor with the wine that he drank. Here's the thing that I find interesting. I think the decision is key. I'm not sure I understand it. Daniel had to eat. And he had to eat something. And so why would he not eat what they were giving him to eat? The the Baptist in me says, well, obviously he didn't want to become an alcoholic. He's not going to drink the wine. But there's nowhere in the Hebrew scriptures that prohibits the consumption of wine. Like the wine in and of itself was not a defiling substance in their mind. So why does Daniel say, this is, what I'm, this, is, this is where I'm going to commit. This is where I'm going to start. And, and you see that he's misunderstood. The guy who's in charge of him, he says, look, I don't want to eat this stuff. This is not what I want. Like, I'm, I'm not going to defile myself with your stuff. And he says, look, I understand. Like, Daniel, I like you. You're a good dude. I don't really get your story. I don't understand what you're doing. But, like, I like you. But you have to understand, if I don't feed you and you start looking scrawny, I'm going to be the one that's in trouble. Like, I'm the one who has to take care of you. I'm the one that the king is going to be mad at for not letting you eat. Like, he's not going to let me just let you do a hunger strike on on his clock. Like, is that what this is? Are you doing a hunger strike? And he says, no, 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 it's not like that. But, But put us to the test. Let us eat vegetables... For, for 10 days, and, and, if, and, if, and if, you know, we look scrawny, then we'll go back and we'll eat the food that you want us to eat. But if not, then, like, what, what's the harm? So Daniel's advocating for vegetarianism. Is he, is he like, the, the first vegan? Like, let me tell you, like, I only eat. Like, okay. I also don't think that that's what's happening. So what, what is happening? Is, is the food that the king eating, is it because that food is offered to like the Babylonian gods? Is there like a religious overtone in the background? I don't know. Because they offered everything to, the, to their gods. Like it wouldn't just be the meat sacrifices and the wine that they offered and presented before their false gods. They would have also offered the vegetables. Like the fruit of the harvest also would have been presented to their gods first. Like... I, I don't know that that's what it is. What, what is Daniel doing? He acknowledges that he's in a very particular situation and that the temptations are overwhelming. His faith is under fire. They want to reprogram him. So what is it, like how is he going to keep his mind? How is he going to keep his wits about him? If I buy into the royal court's mentality of like we only eat the finest food, like we are, you know, the royal family and we are like the, the, the ritzy like people and we don't, we just eat the nice things. There's a burr, there's a spur, there's a hook 
that can get in his heart where he is enticed by the, the sweetness. He is enticed by the richness. He's enticed by the satisfaction that the king is offering to him. See, isn't life better in Babylon? You eat better here. He says, no, I am not a citizen of Babylon. I'm going to remember my home, and I'm going to remember my home every time I sit to eat. I'm going to remember that though Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon, he is not the king of my heart. I'm going to continue to call myself Daniel. I will not let you rename me Belshazzar. And it's a simple thing that he committed and resolved in his heart. He says, hey, test me on it. So I have two questions. Um, <laughs> I have two questions, and I didn't talk about them the way that I planned to talk to them, so I don't know if they'll make any sense to you or not. <laughs> two questions. Um, we read this morning from the end of the Sermon on the Mount, so this, um, the last several weeks we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer and it's in the middle of this Sermon on the Mount. And the, the end of the Sermon on the Mount ends with Jesus saying, look, how you, what you build your life on matters. If you build your life on sinking sand, then it's, when storms come, it's going to wash your life away. But if you build your life on me and my words, then your house is going to stand. So what is, it, like, what is it that we choose to build our life on? Are we trusting Jesus to bring us into his kingdom. Because there's a lot of things that Daniel could have been upset about that he didn't fight over. Food is a really strange thing to pick. Like Everything about his world changed. He was in a different climate, different weather, weather patterns. The city was different. He didn't know the layout. He probably was in captivity, so like he couldn't really go and wander the streets. And I'm sure that wasn't a pleasant experience, regardless of how um, kindly they tr treated him. Like There were a lot of things that he could have like stuck in the ground and said, no, I'm not going to do this. And yet it was this thing. There was something about that that tied him back to his God. So... Are we trusting Jesus to bring us into his kingdom? And are we careful to remind ourselves that this is not our home? We're adaptable by nature. It's actually a great help. Um, and some of us are more adaptable than others. Um, it didn't take long for me to adapt to, like, loving living in Florida. Like, the heat was great, and I like not winter. Like, that's my favorite thing. Um, but we are adaptable. We get comfortable wherever we spend the most time, which is helpful, but there's also a danger there. If we spend all of our time here, we can get comfortable here, and we can think, like, this is where I belong. And Jesus would say, no, like... You're ambassadors of my kingdom. Your home is elsewhere. Are we careful to remind ourselves that this is not our home? We talked about it last week in, in, in Romans 12. Like, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Daniel made a commitment that he was going to remind himself that Babylon was not his home by what he ate multiple times a day. This is not my home. This is not my home. This is not my home.
Peter, um, when he writes later on, even warns us that not only is this a struggle, that this is actually a war for us. If, <laughs> so you're like, oh, Michael, you're kind of blowing all this stuff out of proportion. It's food and drink and whatever. It's like, well, when, 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 when Peter writes to people who have been dispersed in a, in a similar kind of way, he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Are we trusting Jesus to bring us into his kingdom? And are we careful to remind ourselves that this is not our home? Because God is not held captive, even when his people fail. So what happens? Uh, Daniel offers up this test. How does that turn out? Verse 14 so he, the, the, the chief eunuchs, so he listened to them, Daniel and his friends, in this matter, and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine uh, and the wine that they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. There was some wisdom in the experiment, right? Because Daniel could have put his foot down and said, I'm not eating that stuff, like it's over, and went on a hunger strike. But he says, no, 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 no. give us a test. Like, 10 days is probably enough to figure out whether or not your new diet's going to work. So, so test us for 10 days. And, and at the end of that, like, then you can make your decision. He doesn't, he doesn't try to steal the authority back from them. He, he pushes them respectfully towards their authority. And, and, and there's times where I think that we forget, like, that's the, the, the way that Jesus wants for us to live with authority. Like, Romans 13 is really clear that we're supposed to give respect and honor to people that are governing authorities, whether, we be, whether we're on board with them or not. So he's, he's got this wisdom for this test, and it turns out good. Like, they're fatter, and, and they look healthier eating vegetables uh, than the guys who were drinking wine and chowing on the, the king's steak. So there's a lot of things in Daniel that are like, I have to suspend reality to kind of buy into it. This is probably the biggest one. Homies ate vegetables for 10 days, and they were fatter than the guys who were eating steak. God's doing God's stuff. That's all I got for you. And so, at the end of this, and at the end of the three years of re-education, 
It comes time for testing. they got to stand before the king. And the king, remember, his whole goal in this whole, like, capture and relocate and re-educate, this whole thing is I want them to be the Babylonians of the Babylonians. And so they got to stand for their final exam. And the king is going to question him. And what is he looking for? He's looking to see that they are Babylonian to the core, that they, like, understand the culture and that they can give him insight into the kingdom. And he questions these guys who still won't call themselves by the Babylonian names. And they're better than everybody else. And he gives them a promotion. They get the corner office. They get to do, like, they get to do the, uh, the, the conference room out looking over the city of Babylon. They're, they're, they get a promotion. And I have to read in between the lines here, but I, I want to because I think it's something that we may be missing. I don't think that Daniel and his friends were out to, like, fight the Babylonian culture. They knew where they were. They were pretty clear about what had happened to them and about where they were and about whose authority was what. And so they weren't out to wage war against a godless society or actually a a little g, godful society, a, a society that was full of worshiping anything but the true God. They said, no, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to serve well here. We're going to take the wisdom of the creator and we're going to let you have it. From your perspective, it's ten times better than what these guys are making up off the top of their heads, but that's because it's not coming from us. Like it's, it's, it's coming to us from our God to you. Are they resentful being in Babylon? Are they hostile towards the Babylonians in the court? Or do they see their place in Babylon as an opportunity to serve Yahweh and to bring his blessings to people who are far from him? And there's just one other small feature that, as Americans, we're going to be real quick to look over because the book's called Daniel, and it starts off with Daniel, and Daniel's the, the representative guy. But like, notice that Daniel doesn't stand alone here that it was the four of them, arm in arm, who said, test us. See what you find in us. We are going to journey this together, and whatever happens to one of us happens to all of us. We stand together, not hostile, not resentful, but a shining light in a dark place. They're going to stay grounded in the faith identity that they have entrusted from their parents, the true worship of the true God. So are we, church, are we conduits of God's blessing to people, even to people that are far from him? When God blesses us, we're, we're uh, sometimes just real quick to receive, like, oh, God, thanks for this, thanks for this, thanks for this, thanks for this. And we forget that oftentimes, many times, perhaps even most of the time, God gives us a blessing so that we can share it. 
say, okay, well, I'll share it with like my friends or I'll share it with, I'll have my friends over at this house that you've blessed me with or I'll have the people that I like over with me at my house. And, and Jesus says, yeah, but what a, like, love your enemies? If he curses you, bless him and pray for him. If, if he has a need, provide it for him. Are we conduits of God's blessing, which is in and of itself a difficult idea for us to grasp, but are we conduits of God's blessing even to those who are far from him? Can we look Babylon in the eye and say, Yahweh's wisdom, Yahweh's truth is true whether you acknowledge him as the Lord of creation or not. And you will be blessed by following it. So we hold God's gifts with open hands. He gives us a gift. Someone asks us for it, and it goes. Because God in spite of all appearances, in spite of all hostility towards him, in spite of all of our personal failures as the people of God, God is not held captive even when his people fail. Would you pray with me? Lord, we need you. You're, you're in the center of this story. Daniel would be nothing without you. We would not remember his story or any of his life if you were not leading and guiding him. And so, Lord, I do pray that you would help us to uh, come to those points, the crossroads, to know where to stick our flag, to know where to resolve and to make commitments. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to make commitments to things that do not matter. That we would seek your kingdom first. Would you forgive us for the times where we've sought to build up something else? Where we've wanted to build our own kingdom or our own little center of self-worship. God, would you forgive us for the times that we have tried to put your name on our false worship? Would you, in your grace and kindness, lead us to true worship of you, the true God, in your spirit. We submit our minds to you, to be transformed by you, and our hearts, our souls. And we submit our bodies. 
We ask that you would remind us regularly this week and this month into the years to come that this is not our home. But that you're not held captive though we're in exile. Would you move? Would you work? And perhaps if it pleases you, would you use us in your work? It's in your name we ask. Amen.